Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, we start off with a segment so many of you love, Clark Stinks. Also, have you ever had to sign a non-compete agreement when taking a new job? A lot of people are facing that right now. I have a special warning for you. I also want you to know that we are not doing a podcast on Labor Day. I am taking Labor Day off, so we will resume on Tuesday with the podcast. And Clark Stinks, which you access at clark.com slash Clark Stinks, is where you give me feedback on something you've heard from me on the podcast, advice, information, opinion, that you feel I gave an incomplete picture or am just plain wrong. Krista goes through your posts on clark.com slash clarkstinks and shares highlights with you right here on the podcast. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. Your answer to Robert in Oregon on your August 30th podcast is what should really be flushed. Robert received a toilet after he had canceled the order. The store acknowledged the mistake, but said they can't pick the toilet up, so he needs to drive one hour round trip to return it. He asked you, am I required by law to return the toilet to the store? You rambled on and then said he should call the store's general manager. Robert's call would be much more fruitful if you had armed him with the knowledge that the law is on his side. According to the FTC, and he sent us some reference links, a consumer does not have to return merchandise that wasn't ordered. He should document his cancellation and all the conversations. Greg in Houston. Greg, thank you. So the deal is the law is more narrow than you might imagine, that if something is sent to you through the U.S. mail, that you did not order, you have the right to not pay for the item and you have the right to keep it or dispose of it however you wish. But very seldom do things come through the Postal Service and I really doubt that a toilet came through the Postal Service. So that is a limited right that used to be much more valuable before the uh, the delivery systems that are everywhere now with FedEx and UPS and now Amazon doing its own delivery service. But your point is valid, and I should have mentioned that if it was sent through the Postal Service, that it would not have been a hard problem for Robert to solve. Clark waxed poetic about Dollar Tree's $1 Price policy. It appears this may be coming to an end. On Saturday, I was shopping at a Dollar Tree and saw a display of items for $3 and $5. This is probably the largest Dollar Tree in my area. 
I was very, very surprised. This is the first time I've encountered that. While probably 98% of the items in the store were, were still $1, it looks like even Clark's beloved Dollar Tree is now experimenting with turning into a store that will compete directly with Five Below. Ethan. Ethan, this is true. You know, Dollar Tree experimented with a separately branded chain called Deals that had Dollar Tree items in it and then a bunch of things that were higher than a dollar. They are now, uh, after pressure from the investment community, they're now experimenting in some locations with having a selection of items that are more expensive than a dollar. And it is a sign of inflation that I've talked about the Dollar Tree inflation index, how items are smaller and smaller in terms of the quantity or ounces or whatever you get for that same dollar is a way that Dollar Tree has had to respond. And it was just a story in the financial press yesterday about the extreme financial pressures that Dollar Tree is facing trying to hold the line at $1. And another one, I was surprised to hear Clark say that dollar stores offer a good value. It's well documented that they have a higher markup than traditional discount retailers such as Aldi and Walmart, even though the quality of dollar store products is often less. Another common tactic dollar stores use to keep prices low is reducing the amount of a product. As a result, unit prices at dollar stores are often double those of Clark's favorite, Costco. I agree that they provide some value in the lower income and rural areas that they tend to dominate, but their convenience at a cost reminds me of the check cashing businesses that are also often found in these areas. Brian. Brian, thank you. And it is true that the uh, particularly Dollar Tree historically is run at very good margins, hitting their $1 price point for items for sale. Uh, this is not true of Family Dollar. They've had a lot of trouble running that business forever. The long-troubled Family Dollar um, and Dollar General has had good margins, but they all provide value to people on a very, very tight budget. Yes, some of the quantities are smaller to hit lower price points, but they make it possible for somebody who's got just so little money to get by on to have the items they need, not have to commute a long way to a Walmart or certainly to a warehouse club that would be even further. So I do feel like the dollar stores do serve a significant need in the marketplace. Cute puppy Clark, and I love the name, but, and I hope I'm wrong, but a cute little what looks like a golden doodle or labradoodle was probably purchased unless you were the only one I've heard of that got that type of puppy from a shelter. People that follow you come to you for many types of advice and guidance, financial and otherwise. I would hope you would be an advocate for don't shop, please adopt. So many dogs and cats are dumped in shelters, and those are the lucky ones. Some are thrown into dumpsters or left in a dog park overnight. So tell me, Clark, was Kirkland purchased from a breeder or rescued from either a shelter or the tons of rescue organizations that foster abandoned dogs and cats? And please, if you did purchase, don't use the we needed a hypoallergenic dog. Plenty of those are available for adoption. My own rescue dog is hypoallergenic. It's a Yorkie Poodle Bichon Maltese mix. Melody. Melody, thank you. You know, you are representing many, many people who have been upset on social media that our little puppy looks like a, a purchase bred dog 
And those of you that are unhappy with me, it's true. My wife spent four months looking for a puppy to adopt from a rescue or from the Humane Society. We made multiple trips to the Humane Society, and we also tried with rescues all over the place. Um, My wife was even looking as far away as 1,200 miles away for a rescue and found one that she thought was going to be perfect. And they said, no, we only allow adoptions within 200 miles. And so this was something my wife wanted. And it is true. It is a mini golden doodle. That's what it's called. Mini golden doodle. And it is three quarters poodle, one quarter golden retriever, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, 100% we, adorable. Oh, well, he is really cute, and his name is Kirkland Signature, and I do have allergy issues, so that was part of the picture, so that is my fault with the allergy part, and I wish that Lane could come on the podcast and explain why she wanted this puppy, and and we paid for one. But it is a really loving addition to our family. And our other dog is a rescue. And you may have seen Winston Churchill's picture before. And so we have one rescue and we have one bred dog with some kind of papers. Clark, you keep stinking on these 403Bs. You rightfully rail hard against the 403Bs that charge high commissions and fees. These are in reference to the 403B annuities sold by insurance companies. Pure trash. However, you really need to encourage your listeners to look into the 403Bs that allow you to invest into mutual funds with custodial accounts. Years ago, I paid surrender fees to get out of an annuity and now regularly invest into a target date fund in my 403B account with Vanguard. The account is growing just like my IRA, my Roth IRA, and it's imperative that hardworking educators and medical professionals know about these types of 403Bs. Michelle. Michelle, thank you. And uh, you are right that you're not always stuck in the hideous insurance company products. Um, One thing with the 403B plans that allow you now to invest with low-cost providers, often the insurance company will charge you additional fees and commissions, even just having them administer the 403B account, even though the funds you're in are lower, lower cost. So you always have to check to see if you're being charged administrative fees that could be back-breaking inside a 403B. The reality is 403Bs should not exist. People who work for as teachers, work at nonprofits, and work at hospitals should have access to the same type of low-cost 401K plans that people who work for traditional companies have access to. Someone was asking about having to provide his checking information to a cell carrier to get the best rate, $240 a year in savings. He was uncomfortable with giving out that information, and Clark said the risk and reward equation tipped in favor of giving it out. Clark doesn't necessarily stink on this one. He just has a bit of a connect-the-dots issue. He missed an opportunity to suggest the same thing as he talks about when speaking about Zelle, that is, open a separate account for the cell company, and maybe Zelle as well, to draw from. 
Clark in the past has warned about not allowing a company to draft from one's checking account, just as he has warned about the pitfalls of Zelle. Seems like Clark should put a big sticky note on the top edge of one of his monitors to always suggest a separate account anytime the company wants to stick their hands in someone else's checking account. Steve. Steve, great suggestion, and that is the safest way to do it, is to have a separate account when, in order to save money, you have to allow somebody the ability to draft your checking account. And then another thing having to do with Zelle, I'm a big fan and have been even seen you speak live in Orlando. I don't use Zelle nor work for them, don't worry, but I have learned that Zelle is huge in Venezuela. As a result of their government's disastrous domestic economic policies, our southern neighbors have adopted Zelle as their means of using the more stable U.S. dollar to pay for nearly everything and function as best as they can in the conditions they have. It's worth noting. Thank you for all that you and your team do, Will. Will, that is a a great situation where Zelle has a positive use in people's lives. And I feel so bad for the people of Venezuela that have faced hardship that is so severe in the country that used to be the wealthiest country in Latin America and now is so impoverished because of mismanagement by the communist dictatorship. And I hope at some point, someday, the people of Venezuela and the people of Cuba are freed from the shackles of communism. Clark, I usually appreciate your advice, but a few weeks ago, a gentleman wrote in who had recently been named godfather to his cousin's child. He was curious about options for setting aside money for her. Your advice was to just give the money to your cousin. Clark, this advice stinks. What if the cousin is a doofus or bad with money? There has to be a better way, Molly. (laughs) You always have to know the relative first. And you are exactly right. (laughs) So um, that is totally true that if you have someone who you would not be able to trust with money, in your words, a doofus, (laughs) or worse, um, I'm familiar with a situation I was asked for advice on involving uh, someone wanting to set aside money for their grandkids college and knowing that the parents of the grandkids were really 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 bad with money and instead uh in his will set up for another non-family member to handle the 529s for the kids and there are situations like that and you point out a very valid issue And speaking of an issue I've had problems with, I hate covenants not to compete. I just despise them. And I need for you to know something as you're looking for a job right now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I despise what's known as a covenant not to compete or non-compete clause that employers who are afraid of the marketplace impose a requirement on their workers that they are prohibited from going to work for someone else within a certain geographic region or in certain particular jobs for a number of years. Even if the employer dumps you, you're prohibited from going to work. Do you know that the best guess now is that somewhere around one in five workers in the United States are in these hideous covenants not to compete? And that's even with the nation's largest state outlawing them. California, you can't do it. Now, part of the reason, and I talked about this before, why Boston went from being the key, the heart of the technology industry in the United States to being a nothing burger in technology was because Massachusetts had these hideous covenants not to compete, and California didn't allow them. So people were unwilling to work for these technology companies in Massachusetts because they knew they were their prisoner and couldn't go anywhere else ever, basically, in their working lifetime. These covenants give too much power to employers, and they're inexcusable. But it's haphazard. You know, this state will ban them, this other state will restrict them, this other state allows them however they want to do them. Others have some guardrails around them to not make them career-ruining But what you need to know is that, just as we talked about years ago with Jimmy John's imposing covenants not to compete on their sandwich delivery drivers, what corporate secrets does a sandwich delivery driver have? Do they know some kind of secret recipe that Jimmy John's was using in their sandwiches? After a lot of fuss, Jimmy John's backed down because of the publicity, but It's very common that people in lower-wage jobs are in covenants not to compete. Roughly one in seven people who are in a lower-wage job have a covenant not to compete that prevents them from going to get gainful employment if they're no longer working for whoever they're working for. This is ridiculous. This is insane. So why am I talking about this now? because it's been a gripe of mine for a long, long time. The key for you is the job market is your friend right now. Employers are begging for workers, but even companies that are begging for workers, there's about a one in five chance that they'll try to stick you with a covenant not to compete. And you know what? You tell them to take that job and beep. You do not take that job unless they remove that covenant not to compete. Because remember, the marketplace is yours right now. You are in the driver's seat. 
like workers have not been in forever, in generations in the United States. So an employer wants to impose this anti-market idiocy on you? Uh-uh. That's not the place you're going to. You're going to go somewhere else. We should let the power of the marketplace dictate where you go to work. The weird thing is how often people have signed these clauses and don't even know. They'll go through personnel or human resources or whatever, and they'll give you a stack of forms to sign. Before you sign your name to those things, take the time to read them. You want to know if you're agreeing to a covenant not to compete that'll prevent you from taking your skills, your ability, your hard work, and going somewhere else. Krista? From Matthew in Alaska, Clark, for all your talk about pensions being a paycheck guaranteed by the backstop of the PBGC, I'd like to direct you to the following story, and I sent you this story last night. From what I can gather in this news article, that guaranteed check that so many people were relying on turned out to be not so guaranteed after all, and the PBGC doesn't seem to be helping. Maybe you should advise people to come up with a contingency plan on what they will do if their pension check gets cut in half like what happened to these people? So this is something we took a number of questions on uh, going back to, I feel like, mid-last decade that multi-employer pension plans that were typically union plans were not properly funded and union membership outside of government employment has collapsed in the United States. And so these plans required funding from current workers to pay for those who have retired or will retire soon. And as union employment has declined, there are too few workers to fund these plans. Congress came up with a rescue for these plans, and now there's all kinds of fuss and rigmarole about this obscure agency, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, not following the will of Congress and how they bail out these pension plans. Um, this is an unusual situation, and but it's not unique. Let me give another example. If an employer goes bust that has a pension plan, or the pension plan goes bust, and the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation steps in to pay pensions to people where the employer plan has gone insolvent, highly compensated employees have their pension benefit reduced. Most employees maintain the same pension. There's a formula of what's considered to be highly compensated. So this is mostly an issue for people, Matthew, who are higher income workers who are receiving a pension. And also in this particular unique situation for multi-employer pensions involving unions. What is the domestic and international stock allocation that you recommend? Vanguard does 60-40, Fidelity recommends 70-30, but does 60-40 in some funds. On the internet, you can see recommendations from 100% domestic to 100% international. Clark, can you recommend the allocation you would personally do as well as some alternatives? So, gosh, there is no one right formula for a mix of domestic and international. 
Although I believe that long term, because we're such a mature society, that there will be more economic growth for decades to come outside the United States than in the United States. So what I do, and this is just my personal portfolio, this isn't what I'm recommending that you do or someone else do specifically, I do 50% domestic, 50% international. And so I do that because if you do 50% domestic, a lot of the big companies in the United States do a meaningful, substantial business outside the United States. So my tilt is really much more maybe if you effectively take my domestic and international mix, I'm probably somewhere close to 70% international, which dovetails with the fact that the United States economy is about 25% of worldwide economic activity. So that's what I do for myself, but I'm not qualified to recommend what each individual should do, but that's how I got to my allocation. Mark in Ohio says, do you really get bang for your buck with solar power? Also, and they ask about a specific company there, is this company a good company to go with? So how do you choose a solar company, Clark? Mark, this is so hard to make the decisions on. First of all, any company is going to tell you the payback is fantastic. And it is true that the cost of panels has dropped by over 90%, the effective cost of panels over 90% in the last decade. So the bang for your buck with purchasing of solar panels has gone way up. But that's only part of the picture for residential solar because most of the expense is for the marketing by the solar company, solar installation company, and the labor cost for installing, engineering the system and installing it at your property. So there is not an easy way for you to know um, if solar is going to have a good payback for you. Um, You know, utility-scale solar, where you see these areas around the country with the massive solar farms, those are a slam dunk. But residential solar is a harder one to figure out. And the only way you can truly have a sense of which solar company is offering the best deal is when you're comparing the same size system from a minimum of three companies that install solar in your area, Mark, but I prefer five. As for the actual payback cycle, so hard to know. Your best bet is if you can talk to people who've installed solar in your neighborhood, if anybody has, and what kind of savings real savings they're seeing per month, looking at a month this year versus a month last year, through a year, are they really getting a payback? The payback cycle you want is nine years or less for installing solar at your home. I wish I could be more specific, Mark. It's too hard to do. From Margaret in Iowa, I want to sell things on Facebook Marketplace. I usually stick with local selling because I don't understand the shipping part. Well, some things aren't moving locally, so I offered shipping. Now someone wants to purchase something, and Facebook wants me to link to my bank account. What are your thoughts on the safest way to do this? For now, the buyer has agreed to pay me through my PayPal, and then I ship it. 
but I had another person cancel on me when I asked them to do that way versus going through Facebook. On a side note, my husband thinks you're a god and takes every bit of your advice. <laughs> he does not miss a podcast. When he references something, he uses your name, and that is pretty much daily. So if you read this on air, give a shout out to Dave. He does not know I'm sending this question. Okay, Dave. <laughs> so just take anything you hear from me is my opinion, and there could be others that are superior to mine, but thank you for your loyalty. And Margaret, if you are choosing to sell on the Facebook marketplace, uh, just as with PayPal, you had to give your bank account link. You do the same thing with Facebook. A lot of people are going to look at that as a safer way to do business in the Facebook marketplace. And I'm okay with you linking your bank account with Facebook to sell that way. And I want to thank you for joining us. Have a great, great holiday weekend. If you're lucky enough to have Labor Day off, if you are unlucky enough and you're working, I hope other people will express their gratitude to you. If you're working retail or in a restaurant or whatever, that you're working on the day that's supposed to celebrate labor and having the day off. I am one of the lucky ones taking Labor Day off so we won't have a podcast episode on Monday.